0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. It's a sad episode today. The family of squadron leader George Leonard Johnson, Johnny Johnson, have announced that Johnny died At the age of 101, on December the 7th, 2022, Johnny Johnson was the last surviving member of the original 617 Squadron who took part in Operation Chastise, the Dam Busters raid in May 1943. He was the last. Dam Buster. I was lucky enough to meet Johnny several times in my career. I remember going way back into the early noughties. He came as a hardy, healthy man in his 80s, drove himself up to Derbyshire, where we walked the Derbyshire dams on which the Dam Busters trained. Little did I think then, as we went to the pub afterwards and had a few beers and dinner, how rare and extraordinary this opportunity was. As the years went by and the group of veterans from that conflict dwindled, it started to feel more and more special every time I met him. I saw him in Lincoln and I used to go and visit him in his care home where he sat down very kindly and gave me an interview for the History Hit podcast just as I was starting out. That is the episode that we're repeating today on the podcast so we can celebrate the passing of a national treasure. Thank you, Johnny, for a lifetime of service. And thank you personally for being so nice to me and allowing me to bother you and record your words for posterity. Here he is. RIP. Enjoy. T-minus 10
2: Atomic bomb dropped Nine. on Hiroshima Ten. God save the king No black-white unity
3: Till there is first some black unity
2: Never to go to war with one another again And liftoff
1: And the shuttle has cleared the tower Can I ask first about your upbringing Because it was quite a, quite a tough childhood you had
2: My mother died before, fortnight before my third birthday So I, I never knew a mother's love and I had a father who, whether he blamed me for my mother's death, I don't know. But um, the first thing I remember about him was we were at the hospital waiting to go up and see my mother. And uh, he was talking to somebody else. I went out to join them. And he explained to this character who I was. I was the sixth of the family, the youngest of, of six. And this character said, what, another one? My father said, yes, he's a mistake. Uh, Thank you very much. I remember that from from that age. And from then on, as far as he was concerned, I was a mistake. And uh, uh, as with most men, he used a cutthroat razor for shaving. And the strop was uh, hung on the back of the kitchen door. And if that shot came down and he wasn't shaving, I knew where it was headed, right across my back, and that was it. And that was the sort of upbringing that I started with. And um, my sister um, almost became my surrogate mother. She was seven years older than me. My father treated her much the same as he treated me, not hitting her, but he argued. Her daughter uh, was there to look after her father in the way he wanted it done at the time that he wanted it done. And that was it. And, uh, What is now Lord Wandsworth College in in Hampshire was Lord Wandsworth Agricultural College in my day. And it was bequeathed by Lord Wandsworth for the children of agricultural families that lost one or both parents and everything was free. Well, the the head teacher of our elementary school heard about this. She applied on my behalf. And I was interviewed. I was offered a place. My father said no. At 14 he leaves school, he goes out and gets a job and brings some money into the house. The teacher was so furious about this. We had a squire, still got a squire in the small village. She went to see the um, squire's wife and told her the story. And the um, squire's wife went to see my father and told him his fortune in no uncertain terms how he was ruining my chances of a better education and a much better future life. He ought to be ashamed of himself. I suppose I better let him go then. And that was it.
1: Do you remember being happy as a child, or was it just hard?
2: It was hard at that stage. And at 11, I went up, went over to Lord Wandsworth, and that's when life really started. And it was so different, and so much different from... What I've been used to. <laughs> One interesting thing: there was a junior school there. She, of course, I joined in. I had a, 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 a fairly rough skin on my on my face, and the matron treated it with, with lard. I was known as Lardy Face. <laughs> and about almost oh, four years ago now had a telephone call, and the caller said, is that lardy? And I said, my God, that must be from Lord Wanderth. He <laughs> <laughs> was one of the other old boys as well.
1: Growing up, you, as an agricultural labouring family, oh, yeah. did you ever dream that, that one day you might join the RAF, this glamorous
2: aviation no. service? No. dream about that sort of thing. I, I fact, oh, as Lord Wanderth, my uh, original ambition was to be a vet. But my school certificate results weren't quite as good as they might have been. I passed, yes. Um, when I left school, I thought it was time I got into this war. Having seen the films of the First World War with the trench fire fighting, the army was out as far as I was concerned. I didn't like Walter anyway, so the Navy was out just left me the, the Air Force. But I didn't want to be a pilot. I didn't feel I had the coordination or the aptitude. And at that age, I wanted to go bomber rather than fighter. And I knew that bomber pilots were responsible for the safety of the crew as a whole. And I didn't think I had the uh, responsibility for that either. However, I when it came to the selection committee, they... Changed, made me change my mind, and selected me for pilot training. And that was sort of a standby for a couple of, almost a year, before we started the training.
1: Did you? Jo- Why did you join the RAF though when war broke out?
2: Basically, because I think I'd, I felt so much anti against Hitler.
1: So you, even in the 1930s you abs- you knew Hitler was an evil force in the world.
2: That's right. Yes. Yes. Well, only because, basically, of the reaction, of, uh, uh, what he was doing to this country, the bombing and so on. And that stayed out. That was the basic reason behind it. And uh, I felt uh, I wanted to get back to him as much as I could. And the only way to do that was joining one of the services.
1: Tell me how you came to, to be on 617 Squadron.
2: Well, uh, with the pilot training. I eventually ended up in America. And we had two training schemes out there, the British Flying Training School and the rest with the American Army Air Corps. I got one of the Army Air Corps stations. Nice posting, Florida, uh, Arcadia in Florida. But I could not stand the Army Air Corps. Their petty discipline and their sloppy marching really got up my nose. Fortunately, the instructors were civilians, and decent people, but um, I managed to solo, but my landings weren't quite what they ought to have been. And he said to me one day, I'm sorry, little son, I don't think you're going to make it. I said, don't be sorry, neither do I, and I joined a group there, about 10 of us, washed out pilots, and we went back to uh, uh, Maxwell Field in Montgomery, still with the Army Air Corps, we weren't supposed to talk going into breakfast, so we sang Colonel Bogey, just for the hell of it. And uh, on Our senior member was a flight sergeant gunner who had been hoping to re- re- reach out as a pilot. And um, On the last morning, he said, let's show these so-and-sos how to march. So we fell in RAF style outside the, the dining room, then marched back to the billet 160 paces to the minute arms swinging waist-high forwards and backwards just as it had been at ITW. And the looks we got from these people as we went by, at least we felt we'd left our mark on Maxwell Field. But then it was back to uh, kind of let wait for a ship to bring us home. And it was January of 1942 by the time I got back into this country. No nearer to fighting that war than I had been when I joined. What was the shortest course? And it was gunnery. So I took the gunnery course. And again, going through the the acceptance process, the President said, I think you'd be afraid to be a Gunner Johnson. I said, I don't think so, sir. If I were, I wouldn't have volunteered anyway. End of the exercise of that that conversation. But um, I I trained, I got past the Gunner Exam. And instead of being posted to an OTU, which is the usual thing, you posted to an OTU when you finished your air crew training and you met the rest of the crew members joined up a crew and then moved out for further training. But not me, I was posted direct to ninety seven squadron at Woodhall as a spare gunner. Which meant I, I had to fly with anybody who hadn't got a mid upper or a rear gunner for that night's operations for various reasons. Quite an inauguration into operational flying. But we managed to get through.
1: What was your first operational sortie?
2: <laughs> a failure. The first one, I was flying with one of the Squadron Flight Commanders. And we were carrying the 8,000-pound uh, bomb. And nobody had been successfully dropped one of these up to that stage. And we were going to do it. So we took off when it on board. Flying across the North Sea, I was in the middle of range. Swung round, i see petrol streaming out of one of the engines. I called up the captain oh dear. Said, I'm sorry chaps, we'll have to go back. So we didn't drop the £8,000 either, we just landed with it. Still on. However, when, by that time, 97 had been re-equipped with Lancasters, and they were looking for the seventh member of crew, the bomb aimer, and they were training them locally. And since it made a difference between seven and six and twelve and six a day, I thought I'd have a go at that. So I, I retrained as a bomber and came back to 97 as a spare bomber.
1: When did you fire, first fire your, your, your weapon as a mid-upper gunner, though, before you retrained?
2: I only fired in practice, that sort of thing, just to test the guns. Uh, I, and that was the same as a bomber. I had to fly in the front turret on the way out, down to drop the bombs at a target, back in the, into the front turret on the way back as part of the, still part of the eyes of the air rest of the crew and that was one of the things about the, the crews generally I think the majority I'm sure the majority of the um, Bomber Command aircrew were there to do the job that they'd been briefed for to the best of their ability and that meant not only the job their individual job but their responsibility to the rest of the crew for the safety where they might be responsible for the safety of the rest of the crew and that was common throughout the whole thing When I asked about my 10th trip on this uh, spare body, I I was told I was joining this crew with an American pilot and my immediate reaction was, oh my God, bloody Americans again. And then I met Joe McCarthy, six foot three and the breadth to go with the height, big in size, big in personality, but, uh, from our point of view, big impartability, which was tremendous confidence, certainly with me. I never once thought of Joe not bringing me back, and he didn't, of course.
1: What's your first memory of being above occupied Europe, dropping bombs on, uh, on targets below?
2: Well, the first memory is that at that time, we were flying out of moon, supposedly for defensive reasons. So it's pretty dark all the way out. I'd fly 10, 12, maybe 15,000 feet. You didn't see anything until you got to the target area. And then you saw all the guns that you'd got to go through before you went home. People say to me, were you frightened? I said, well, I think anyone who saw that for the first time if they weren't a bit apprehensive, were either devoid of emotion or strangers to the truth.
1: What's it like looking up at... Can, you, you can see flares that the pathfinders have dropped, have you, and you can see anti-aircraft fire just swirling up all
2: around you? Yeah. I found my concentration was purely on the bombsite and the target. I'm concentrating, directing the pilot to get my bombs as close as I could to that particular target. Whatever was going on round about me, I just didn't see it. It didn't concern me. I was doing my job, so I thought to the best of my ability. And that was what I considered I was there for. And so, strange as it may seem, I didn't notice the flag that was coming around. I didn't notice the other aircraft in the area until I dropped me bombs. And we then had to fly straight and low for the camera to operate. And so when we got back, the intelligence could see where we dropped our bombs in spite of what we said. And so, so that was that. But um,
1: And did you, did, would you see other Lancasters being hit and back, crews bailing out and falling out of the sky?
2: I, I didn't ever see any of that. Although I understand it happened. I know it happened. I've certainly aircraft shot down over the, uh, the target area. And... Um, either by anti-aircraft guns or there are times when they brought the fighters into the, the target area as well. And it was a, a pretty rough old journey, basically, but you didn't, you, you didn't have time to worry about it. At least I didn't. And uh, I'm, the only time I think I was a bit apprehensive, more than a bit apprehensive, was before I joined Joe's crew, I was flying with a, an, 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 as it happened, an old NCO crew uh, and they were coming close to their last trip in the first tour. And we'd been up to Wiesmar in the north of Germany and uh, as usual the weather was dead loss when we got there, so it was aerial uh, marking and you had no idea where your bombs went, you just bombed the target and that, uh, 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 marker and that was it. And coming back, as soon as you dropped below 10,000 feet, oxygen off, and usually cigarettes on as well. But um, on this occasion, we just dropped down mass off, and there was a god almighty flash, absolutely blind all round, couldn't see a thing. And I was in the front turret by that time. And as an eyesight came back, it looked almost as though the perspex had been burnt out. It was just the metal strips there. But as the eyesight came back, it came, the turret was completely intact. And the misover gunner was calling, are you all right, Colin? Colin was the pilot, obviously fighting like mad with the aircraft that was going down, without don't know in certain terms, and he kept on with this. And in the end he said, my God, they've all gone, I'm going to get out. The wireless operator went back to him and told him to be, stop being such sort a of bloody idiot and not quite so politely as that. How could Colin possibly answer? Without his oxygen mask on, his microphone was away from his mouth. And he was fighting like mad to save the aircraft and us and you, you stupid so-and-so. When we got back, and he was in a, a, a rather pleasant mood, he said he, he saw the St Elmo's fire creeping up the aerial towards his turret, and then woof, it was a lightning flash. And it really was a heller. We dropped from 10 or just below 10 to 2,000 feet, just like that. But Colin, got it controlled at 2,000 feet. I didn't bother to find out what had happened to the aircraft when we got back. I just got, just got out of it and that was it. Did,
1: yeah. did the uh, did the experience of flying like that bring you very close? Did you make great mates in those conditions?
2: Yes. Apart from the fact, I was the odd one out. in that I didn't drink, believe it or not. I managed to change that habit, but still. Um, the... Uh, The reason again goes back to childhood, where our father being farm foreman, during the lambing season, he stayed up most of the night, nipping out to see that the lambs and the ewes were all right, but asleep in his chair in between. And he had his beer, and even in those days, at that level of of, uh, personality, we drank the beer out of the glass, not out of the bottle. And so the bottle and the glass, both empty or thereabouts, on the table, the night passed. Oh, I'll try that. And I tipped the dregs of one into the glass. Your God, flat as hell, tasted horrible, but the smell—that's what really got me. It made me, literally, made me sick. And that smell stayed with me. I couldn't stand the smell of beer from then onwards. So I didn't get into the bar, the pubs, or even into the mess bar, except for a quick trip at lunchtime to get me cigarettes and that was it. I enjoyed my war. I think I felt I was doing what I'd joined for and I was doing it to the best of my ability. And that was what I was there for, but I enjoyed doing it. And so much so with the confidence in my pilot and the rest of the crew that I flew with. We had a, a crew comedian, that was Dave Roger in the rear turret, rear turret, he could always make some cryptic comment whenever the situations were a bit grim. Like, as we were coming back from the dam's raid, it must have been partially my fault. We obviously got off track and we um, ended up on a, a railway. Not only a railway, but a railway yard. But of course, it wasn't a normal railway yard. It was the ham marshalling yard where all the uh, munitions that were made in the rear were distributed to various areas of the war. Obviously not the healthiest places to be at the end of May in 1943. There again, down goes Joe. And from the rear turret, who needs guns? At this height, all they need to do is change the points. <laughs> and that was the sort of thing that Dave could come up with at that time.
1: Did you ever think about what was going on on the ground? You were dropping these bombs, smashing buildings, killing people. Did you think about that?
2: No. No. Um, I think the only, uh, the only respect with which I thought about it was that it was basically retaliate. Retaliation for what Hitler was doing and had done to us. I think that was all it was. I think maybe... From that childhood upbringing, emotion was basically knocked out of me. I don't think I had any particular strong emotion at all. And that's why I didn't feel, I put that on partially, I didn't feel frightened about the flying or, or or the actual bombing. And I didn't really appreciate what it meant to those at the receiving end. I didn't find that out until after the war, when I went back and talked to some German people.
1: Um, Let's talk about the formation of 617. Uh, Was it an an elite force? Was it exciting to be part of this new organisation? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, the first we heard of it was that um, uh, Gibson, oh, I beg his pardon, Wing Commander Gibson, rang... Joe and asked, would he join this special squadron he was forming for one special trip? We were just coming towards the end of our first tour then. Uh, Joe said, Well, i have to ask my crew, which he did, and we agreed to go with him. Um, after a first tour, normal practice was at least weeks leave, and then you went, went on to a ground tour or an operational flying tour until you were required back on ops. In the past, uh-huh. 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 I'll try it again. Looking forward to that leave, my fiancé and I had arranged to get married on April the 3rd. So, I so said, fine. I wrote to her and said, this is what was happening, but don't worry, it won't make any difference. The letter I got back just said, if you're not there on April 3rd, don't bother. I thought, aye, aye, the first mandate's been issued. But, But there we go. Anyway, we're left to that. Moved over to Scampton. And the first thing we heard was, no leave. Oh, God, there goes my wedding. However, Joe took us up as a crew to Gibson's office. And he said, we've just finished our first tour. We're entitled to a week's leave. My boy was supposed to be getting married on the April 3rd, and he's going to get married on April 3rd. We got our leave, and I got my wedding, so that was that. But that, again, was typical of Joe looking after his crew in there.
1: Was, was Guy Gibson a, a terrifying figure, or was he a, a great leader?
2: No. My reaction has to be re- retrospective. As we were on the same squadron, that was all I could say about it. His basic problem was that he was unable to bring himself down to mix and talk with lower ranks. Even junior officers on the duty side, if the only time they'd be spoken to was to get a bollocking if they'd done something they shouldn't have done on duty. I gather he was quite a boy in the mess with the games and fun that went on in there. He was bombastic. Uh, He was autocratic, a strict disciplinarian, which didn't go down very well with the aircrew, of course. And on 106 Squadron, which he'd commanded before he came over to 617, he was known as the Archbastard. And that summed him up pretty well. Mind you, he had done, if he wasn't most experienced, why well, he was one of the most experienced bomber pilots in the command. He'd done two tours of bomber operations and one tour of night operations. And at this stage, he was only 24 years of age. So, he had something to be arrogant about. So, I think when he came to 617, he realised he'd got to get more out of that squadron than out of any of the others. He didn't know at that stage what the target was. Apart from fact he was just a special target. He got everything he could for the squadron. There was an instance where something he wanted, and he ran group. They said, sorry, we can't do that. So he ran command, and they gave him the same answer. He said, right, I'll ring the Air Ministry. And he did. And the Air Ministry gave him the same answer. So he said, right. I'll sit in my office until you change your mind. And he did. And they did. And he got what he wanted. That was typical of his reaction. But he was obviously an action man. And his true indication of his leadership came with the raid itself, the dam's raid itself, where he and his crew made the first attack on the Moan Dam, which we knew was the only dam that was defended. And apart from dropping his bomb, he wanted to assess those defenses at the same time. And then after, as he called each aircraft in, he flew alongside them to attract some of that defense. That to me says, you're doing this, I'm doing this, we're doing it together.
1: You listen to Dan Snow's History. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come.
3: Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me... landed on Japanese shores and followed Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.
0: YahooFinance.com.
3: Lancasters
2: of 617 Squadron flew by night to destroy the dams of the Merner, Eder, and Salt, the heartbeat of industrial Germany. Each bomber carried a new type of bomb specially devised for the raid by Barnes Wallace. Here, Dr. Wallace greets wartime members of the squadron arriving for a reunion at RAF Scampton. Fittingly, they came in a Lancaster. Trying the feel of a tail gunner's turret again is Jerry Witherick, an air gunner on the mission. The flight deck of a Lank. Surviving the mission, squadron commander Guy Gibson won a VC and his squadron won an immortal title, the Dambusters.
1: When you were training up in Derbyshire, what do you think was going on with this strange bomb that was being strapped to the Lancaster, the changes that were made? What on earth was happening?
2: I think we were getting more fun out of the actual flying to think about worrying what was happening. We knew it was a special time, we'd been told that. We'd also been told there had to be complete security about what we were doing and we told no one about the type of training that we were doing. But the interest in that training, of course, was at low level. The prescribed height was a hundred feet. Very few people flew at a hundred feet. It tended to be rather lower than that. And there were occasions when the old aircraft came back with a few tree branches stuck in the wings or something like that, you know. But in Lincolnshire, there's a town called Sutton Bridge. But as you fly up from the south, the electric cables, also crossed the bridge. And this practice wasn't briefed, but every day, everybody did it just for the hell of it. And we flew under the cables and up over the bridge. Great feel that was, wonderful fact. And I learned subsequently that one of the, the um, our residents here, he had an aunt living in Sutton Bridge at that time. And she said, all the, 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 the people in Sutton Bridge, were scared stiff about all these low-flying aircraft. But that's war, dear. So there's a several.
1: And did you drop this strange bouncing bomb in training, or was the first no. time? Never no. dropped. It?
2: No, no, we we didn't even spin it. But that comes later. Uh, but um, we started off with our only means of navigation was lap map reading and dead reckoning. Navigator and my each had, tra- had, had a map with a track marked out and uh, the navigator would indicate what I should be seeing. If I saw it, that was fine. If I didn't, I picked out something else equally prominent, and he could adjust his courses, if necessary, on that. Um, the bombers had to make their, uh, their own site, and it consisted of a triangle of plywood with a peg in each angle, but the distance between the base pins had to be specific and the distance from the base, to the apex, had to be equally specific. And on the bombing range, they arranged two poles, specific distances apart. And the practice was that uh, Leimer had a si- single pin to his eye and directed the pilot until the two base pins were in line with the two poles and dropped the bomb. Practice bombs I needed to and. Uh, if you got it right, first time, great. If you didn't, you did again, and again, and again, until you got it right. Until we have got to the stage where I think most of us were fairly accurate with our bombing. But we are also using some of the dams in this country for bombing practice. Most notably, Derwent Water in Derbyshire. And it had towers, so we could use those for sighting. It also had a a, a marker in the uh, 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 reservoir which showed where the bomb should drop. And you use the same approach as you had on the range. And if your bomb dropped close to that marker, that was fine.
1: Did you have any idea what the target was then? What you were practising on these... What did you think it
2: was? We didn't think. (laughs) Too young to worry about it, Then That was another thing about...
1: How old were you at this point?
2: At that stage, I was 20 years but um, at this stage, when we first joined the squadron, one of the things that struck us was the experience of the crews. Most of them uh, had done one tour, some were on their second tour. The next thing was the aircraft, especially aircraft. Yes, a Lancaster of court. No mid-upper turret, and it seemed as though the, the bomb doors were sealed. And there is two legs standing down, one either side of the fuselage in the front, just below the nose, just just behind the nose. What the hell was that for? And then the bomb arrived. It was just like a glorified big dustbin. But at least it indicated to us what those legs were for. They obviously were going to carry that bomb when it was loaded onto the aircraft. And that was as far as we got with it. We went through... they training with these cross countries, bombing practices and then we went to do a twilight situation where the front prospects of the cabin and the uh, nose were covered in blue sheeting and the pilot and the bomber wore night vision glasses and that created a twilight situation. What I never understood was wh- how you were supposed to map read over the North Sea, because one of our turning points was over the North Sea. However, you had to hope like hell you crossed our point, our coast, in the right place, and you hit the right place as you came back on Dead Reckoning. And from there on to bright moonlight night flying, it had to be bright moonlight, until we got to the stage where Gibson thought we were fit to go. We still had no idea what the target was. He had, he'd been told by then. And I think, uh, certainly the bombing leader, Bob Hay, had been told. And on the Saturday night before uh, the raid, we met as a a, a squadron. George majority of really met Barnes-Wallace for the first time. And uh, he explained, showed his film, of his development of the bomb, how it had been developed, how difficult it had been to get it right in the first place. And then he told us something about the bomb itself. It weighed 9,000 pounds, of which 6,500 was explosive within that bomb, fused with two depth fuses to explode at a depth of 25 feet, but also fused with a self-destruct fuse and we learned out, subsequently, why. And then, I think it was probably the highest-powered briefing I attended throughout my operational career. The AOC was there, station commander, Gibson, of course, was there doing the briefing, barnes and including the briefing too, senior officers of armament and, uh, and uh, engineering from the station were there, intelligence officer, and the dear old Metnan was there too. Well, Gibson explained the, the, the trip to us. The first thing we saw, of course, when we got in the operations room, was that the two models were there, one of the Moan and one of the Zopa. One on the Ada hadn't been, feeted, hadn't been completed. So
1: it was the models there. of the dams.
2: Yes. And that was how we found out what the target is going to be. How wrong can you be? On the previous evening, after Barnes-Wallace's talk, the conjecture was it was going to be German battleships, notably the Tirpitz. Because when you dropped that bomb, it was being rotated at 500 revs a minute backwards. yes, And it had been dropped from exactly 60 feet at a ground speed of 200 knots. And so it became a sort of um, four men flying of the aircraft. Navigator watching the lights um, and uh, when they can up or down until they were coincident. That was the exact height. Flight engineer watching the speed and indicating when it was up or down. And the bomber directing the pilot to the target. And the pilots were being told by three other members of the crew how to fly the aircraft, but they didn't seem to complain too much about it. And that was the way it was going to be. And Gibson, in the briefing, explained that he would take off with two others, and they'd head for the moan. And uh, they would attack the moan when they got there. Six others in two threes would follow him and they, too, would head for the Moan. And if the Moan hadn't been breached by the time they got there, they would attack that under Gibson's direction. And when that was breached, they would move over to the Ada. That was nine of the crews briefed. Five, of which we were one, were briefed for the Zorpa. And, of course, the Zorpa had to be different from the other uh, two. It had no towers. So there was nothing to sight on. And it was so placed in the hills that a head-on attack was virtually impossible, certainly extremely difficult. And so we were briefed. We had to fly down one side of the hills with the port outer engine over the dam itself and fly along the dam and estimate to drop the bomb as near as possible to the centre of the dam with the port engine over the dam, the bomb obviously was on the water side. We well, were a big disappointment because it meant we weren't going to use any of bombing practices we'd been, we'd been doing for the last six weeks, but that was what we had to do, so that was the job. Went back then to the messes for the, the usual operational bacon and eggs and meal before you went. Uh, that was a time when, in the science mess, some wit would say to the captain, if you don't come back and I have your sausage, but uh, that sort of thing uh, was taken in good form. But you saw it, I was then out of the aircraft, and then came our big shock, because Q Queen, I know it's Quebec now, but it, it was Q Queen in those days, uh, decided he did want to go that night. And he developed a hydraulic leak on run-up, which couldn't be fixed in time for take-off. So, There was only one reserve aircraft, and that had come in at 3 o'clock that afternoon. It had been bombed up, fueled up, and it had done a compass swing with a bomb on board to offset the the metal of that that bomb against the aircraft compasses. As soon as we knew we weren't going to be able to take Queen, Joe said, for Christ's sake get that reserve before someone bugger gets there and we don't get to go. So you
1: guys wanted to go? Yeah, oh yes. You're excited? Oh yes.
2: So that was um, where it went. In his hurry to get there, he pulled his parachute. So it was ballooning behind him as he, he went over to reserve aircraft. Did
1: it feel different to other raids you'd been on?
2: Oh yes, very much so. We knew how special it was. And it was, it was explained by the intelligence officer why the raid was so important. Because of the damage that we do to the German armament industry, that was the basic point behind it. And uh, when we got to uh, spare aircraft, the compass card for that last compass swing wasn't in the aircraft. Uh, Joe, I don't think he used the same had a tremendous vocabulary. I don't think he used the same word twice. He was so furious. He got into the truck and down to the flights. Fortunately, the squad adjutant was there all humph. And he said, for Christ's sake, Joe, calm down. If you don't, you'll make a complete pig's ear of the whole thing. And that calmed him down a bit. However, we had a very good flight sergeant, said, Chiefy e. Powell. And he went over to the flights to collect the compass card. But he'd heard Joe say he wasn't going to bother with the parachute. So he detoured to the parachute section and he picked up another parachute. Went back to the truck, gave Joe the the, uh, compass card in the front, put the parachute in the back and said, Your parachute, sir. Flight's on to a flight left end didn't make much difference in those days. But there we are. Joe had got a parachute and that was it. And so eventually we got back to the aircraft. And we were about half an hour late, taking off. When we got flying some distance south of Ham, when there was a good train traveling up at right angles to our track. And because we had no mid upper turret, the mid-upper mid-up gunner was flying in the front turret. Fortunately, they'd fit in stirrups, so he wasn't kicking me up the backside all the time. But then, when we saw this train, he said, can I have a go, Joe? Uh, I think somewhat reluctantly. Joe said, well, yes, all right then. And uh, Ron opened up with these little 303s. That's all we had in the front it. What we didn't know, of course, was it wasn't just a good strain. It was an armoured good strain. And it replied with rather more than 303s. We knew we had been hit. We heard it and we felt it. But it did not seem to impede the aircraft at all, so we carried on. And we eventually found the Zorpa. The first thing we noticed, which we should have probably, if it was on the model we should have seen, was a church steeple on the side of the hill down which we were supposed to go. Joe used that as a marker, tried to align the aircraft as best he could at that position, and then we went down. Because we weren't spinning the bomb, It was an inert drop. The actual position, the conditions for dropping it didn't apply. So it didn't matter about the height or the speed at which he dropped it. We hadn't practiced that type of attack at all. And it wasn't easy. If I wasn't satisfied, I called dummy run. If Joe wasn't satisfied, he just pulled away and left me to call dummy run. This is where Joe where Dave Roger in the Rear Turret came up. Not in a humorous vein. I mean, had a voice from the Rear Turret out about the sixth or seventh of these dummy runs. Won't somebody get that bum out of here? And I had to realise how to become the most unpopular popular member of crew in double quick time. But that was my job, and that was what I was there for. So
1: how many times did you go over the dam to try and get it right?
2: Yeah. Then we had to go up again. And in retrospect, I can understand, to some degree, Dave's anxiety. Because his job, basically, was the safety of the aircraft from enemy fighters. And each time he went up, came back over the village, there's nothing to stop somebody down there ringing up the authorities and saying, they're bombing our dam at at that moment. And of course, that would have brought the fights in. Bye-bye, McCarthy's crew, just like that. And that would have been part of his his apprehension, I think. But then, on the 10th run, neither Joe nor I had said anything to us about height, each other about height. But I'm sure we both realised that the lower we got, the less forward travel that bomb would have before it hit the water. And secondly, the lower we got, the easier it would be to estimate the dropping point. On that 10th run, we were down to 30 feet. And when I said, bomb gone, thank Christ came from the rear turret, just like that. Uh-huh. And because it was so low, it was nose up straight away. So I didn't see the explosion. But Dave did in the rear turret. And he estimated that the Tower of Water went up to about a thousand feet. Well, if you imagine 6,500 six, £6, pounds of explosive being detonated at a depth of, five, of 25 feet, it's going to move a hell lot of a water in all directions, upwards as well as outwards. And that was what he saw. And yet not only that, but in the downflow, flow, some of it came into the turret. So I thought I was going to be drowned as well as not drowned by you buggers up there. <laughs> but the, That was just, again, typical of Dave. We circled, and we found that we'd crumbled the top of the dam, that was all. Barnes Wallace had told us at briefing that he estimated that because of the structure of the the Zorpa, it was like a concrete centre with a sort of pyramid building of broken rock, it's earth packed in tight, and then concrete again on either side. He said it would need at least six bombs to crack it. Said, if you can crack it, the water pressure will do the rest. And judging from the amount of water in that dam, I'm sure he was right. However, it would seem, and this is what surprised us, although we were half an hour late, or thereabouts, when we got there, It didn't seem that any of the other five had been, nor did they arrive whilst we were there. And we didn't find out about that until we got back. So eventually we just soldiered off and uh, the Route home took us over what had been the Moan. And for me, that was probably the greatest satisfaction of the raid, in that we were able to see the destructive result of at least one of those attacks. And we knew that the Ada had been breached as well by radio broadcast.
1: What did the, Moan, the, Mo, the Mona Dam had been breached yeah. by your other crews? What did the area look like?
2: The area was just like an inland sea. There was water everywhere and it was still coming out of that dam about 20 minutes, maybe half an hour since it had been breached. It had been difficult to breach it, but they'd made it. And the Ada was even more difficult... But the last one to attack it, uh, there's knights, uh, um, an Australian. Uh, his bomber was also a Johnson, Ted Johnson. But he was a flight lieutenant, uh, uh, and uh, they managed to breach it on on their their run. there, that was the last aircraft there. If they hadn't made it, that one would have stayed stick to. But it didn't. It breached, and that was the, not so much. Important, as far as the uh, um, I mean, it's an industry term, but the, the uh, canals round about and the, tra- and the um, uh, agricultural land and the um, um, the waterways, uh, the access on the waterways to into the the uh, down, the the, the uh, Harmond area.
1: Did you so, were you cheering and whooping in your plane when you saw that?
2: No. Shearing quietly, yes. At least we'd seen the success of part of the raid, even though ours hadn't been quite so successful. Well, there were, in fact, six reserve aircraft. They'd taken off somewhat later than we did, and three of those were breached for the Zorpa. They were breached when once they were airborne. And um, the first one was shot down almost as soon as he crossed the coast. Ken Brown, a Canadian uh, NCO, made a similar attack to us uh, and had the same sort of result. Sergeant Stanley was in the third. The mist was developing and they couldn't find the Zorpa. And since he was getting near to daylight, he thought they'd better go home. So they came home and landed with the bomb on, which we had been briefed, we weren't supposed to do. Because I think, and the only reason I think, is that the authorities weren't sure exactly what would happen with an aircraft landing with the bomb on board, particularly on Scampton which was still grass. The idea was if you didn't use it on the dams, you dropped the bomb over Germany somewhere and it would explode with a self-detonating. The Germans wouldn't get a copy. Les Monroe had been shot up going out crossing the coast. Apart from other damage to the aircraft, his communication system, internal and external, was destroyed. And so since it was a, a communications operation, there was no point in him going on. And he came back. And he couldn't discharge his bomb, because his release system had been da- da- damaged as well. So he had to land with the bomb on board, and they made a dash out as soon as they landed, to make sure that if it, it didn't go up, they are going to get out of the way first. When uh, Anderson came back, uh, he also landed with the bomb on board, but they got away with it. The next morning, Gibson Sent Anderson back to the squadron he came from for failing to carry out an operation that he'd been ordered to, to take. Uh, sounds hard. But when one considers the costs, the training, aircraft, air crews, the losses uh, I think it was a, a justified decision. We did hear subsequently, unfortunately. Very shortly afterwards, the crew were shot down on another raid. When we got back, we landed at Scanton, I say, to the grass field, and um, landings tended to be a bit more lumpy than they were on the runway. But in our case, they were stumpy stumpy, stumpy and we were starboard wing low. And the engineer, looking out of the perspective, said, we've got a burst tyre skipper. So we taxied back carefully to dispersal, and the chief engineer took the aircraft off for inspection. When he came back, he gave us a severe telling off, only he put it rather more strongly than that, for getting his aircraft shot up so much. But he could tell us the shot that we'd heard and felt had passed through the starboard on the carriage cell, had burst the tyre en route, had then passed through the wing and had landed in the roof just above the navigator's head. How lucky can you get? But we'd got away with it. Of course, at debriefing, we learned the, 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 the end of the story. I don't look forward to war, certainly. But at that, at that time and at that age, I felt I had to do something. I had to join and try to do something about it. And I think that's what made, that makes my life so different from what it had been. At Lord's wonders, the school motto was in Latin. In translation, it means perseverance conquers. And looking back on my life, I found how true that has been from time to time. It's pure guts going forward with what you want to do and making sure you do it to the best of your ability. Doing something that was worthwhile and doing it for a real purpose. I have to say that I feel privileged and, yes, honoured at being able to take part in that raid. Having said that, uh, now I have to constantly uh, remind people that I'm the lucky one. I'm still alive. And what I'm doing and what they are saying to me is not for me, it's for the squadron. And I am purely representing the squadron. Of the 19 aircraft that took off, three came back, had to come back early. Of the 16 that went on, only eight came back. We lost eight, air, eight aircraft. Three crew members had been, been able to escape from one of the aircraft, but it meant 53 aircrew had been lost as well. And that was a tremendous loss for one squadron, for one night's operation. And everybody felt very strongly about it. And although the bars were open in the messes and there was drinking going on, I'm quite sure it wasn't because of the success of the operation. It was commiseration with all those who hadn't come back. And that was what the drinking was was about. And that was the, the, the end of it all.